Hey, this is Alex Shaw, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. I tell you that's a pity, cause I can't get enough. Why do we run? When Vibar Cregan Reed set out to answer this question, he began a journey into the science and psychobiology of the human body, which he says is born to run. We've been runners for about probably for about 2.3 million years. In this episode of The Soul of Life, we talk about Cregan Reed's book, Footnotes, how running makes us human, and a passion for running that took him to the world's most advanced running laboratories and research centers to learn why natural running, running barefoot, is being embraced by running enthusiasts as the solution to foot, leg, and knee injuries that some scientists attribute to modern running shoes. So running shoes usually have a heel to toe differential, so there's a sort of slight platform aspect. What that means is it alters the runner's gait so that nearly all runners end up running onto their heel. Cregan Reed says your body knows more about running than you ever will. And our discussion is equally for those who say they can't run or hate to run as much as it's for running enthusiasts. It's like saying you can't drive a car. Uh, you know, a, a cars are designed to be to be driven. Almost everything about them is optimized for, for being driven. Learning to let your feet teach you how to run doesn't happen from going fast. There aren't many experiences in life where we measure our success, the speed with which we can do it. Like having sex, you're not going to boast about, yeah, I did it in 10 seconds. He says it takes guts to run slow, but doing so makes you less likely to get injured and more likely to engage the body's endorphin system, the runner's high. If it's enjoyable, why not Why not enjoy it and make it, make it last? We discuss the range of benefits from running in natural settings and debate the barefoot running phenomenon. My uncle, he went to two Olympics. He was, he was a barefoot runner. Is the stress that most of us learn to associate with competitive running the reason why many people seem turned off to running for life? I'd run like I was running for a boss or something. And, you know, that kind of running usually makes you feel quite nauseous and it's deeply unpleasant. Welcome to The Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller. I'm still not a great runner. And this is Season 2, Episode 11. Footnotes. How running makes us human. Oh my God, you've got to, got to stay away from the forest. <laughs> I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for Season 2. Vibar Kriegenried is a British author, academic, and broadcaster. He works at the University of Kent, where he is a professor of English and Environmental Humanities. He's the author of Footnotes, How Running Makes Us Human in 2016, and more recently, Primate Change. How the World We Made is Remaking Us in 2018. Cregan Reed's research and writing about the physiology of running follows in the footsteps, pun intended, of many others on this topic, most notably Christopher McDougall, the 2009 author of what some have called a game changer in the sport and in sports medicine of running, the bestseller Born to Run. I might have called that book Born to Run Barefoot. 
McDougall follows members of the reclusive Terra Humera Indian tribe in the Mexican Copper Canyons. Repeatedly injured as a runner himself, McDougall wonders how the tribe members can run ultra distances over 100 miles at incredible speeds without getting the routine injuries most American runners get. Krieg and Reed and McDougall come to the same conclusion. Both overcame running injuries by learning to run as they claim nature intended it, barefoot. They assert that modern cushioned running shoes are a major cause of running injury, pointing to the long history of humans clotting about with scant foot protection. And in fact, rising to apex predator because of our ability to hunt over vast distances before we had Nike Airs. Looking back even at our early American history, I've often marveled at the stories of the Revolutionary Army marching, practically and often literally barefoot, hundreds of miles in the winter. And I wonder how such a feat is humanly possible. You'll have to get used to these puns today, I'm afraid. <laughs> Professor Cregan rejoins me today to marvel with me at what he calls the age of movement famine, how we've let our feet and arches and much of our physical bodies atrophy, and how the average runner has at least one foot or leg injury each year. A phenomenal rate, something he notes would be like a fish having an epidemic fin injury rate. We talk about the anthropology and the physiology of running that he so compellingly lays out in his book, Footnotes, How Running Makes Us Human. Welcome, Dr. Cregan Reed. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Very good. I'm delighted to see you. You're my first international guest here on The Soul of Life. It's, uh, it's a privilege to speak about uh, running today with you. Um, you know, I was really turned on to find your book. I'm a, I've been a runner my entire life, and so have you, it sounds like. So I'm interested to hear about your story about running. Yeah, on and off. I'm still not a great runner. I'm, uh, I, I was, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was always like third or fourth in my class at school. No matter what class I was in, I was always like third or fourth, um, uh, at sprinting. And, uh, like lots of young people, I really struggled to transition from sprinting to longer distances because I was always a little kid who wanted to go as fast as he possibly could. And that's not really compatible with distance running. Um, and then in my 20s, I, I just didn't really do much exercise at all. I'd occasionally go out and run, but I'd run like I was running for a bus or something. And, you know, that kind of running usually makes you feel quite nauseous and it's deeply unpleasant. And then I kind of started flirting with it uh, again in my um, late 20s and, and early 30s. And at that point, I just I just got it. And it became, um, yeah, it ended up becoming a, a part of my life in a way that it hadn't been before. But uh, one of the curious things that I had really just serially forgotten through my life, throughout my life was that my, my uncle was, was an incredible runner. Um, he ran for his country. Um, he went to two Olympics, uh, to run, to run marathons, to compete in the marathons. Um, he competed, um, Europe, in European championships. He got a gold, in fact, um, at a European championship. I think it was in 1966. Um, and, um, he was, he was a barefoot runner. He, his trainers, um, later, uh, put him in shoes when he started to run for want of a better term professionally. Um, so he, uh, but he never really felt comfortable in them. But the trainers were, were always telling him, no, 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 this is better, this is better. So he did He did compete mostly in shoes, but he learnt everything that he learnt about running without using any shoes at all. He came from a very poor Irish background. 
there were no, you know, running shoe shops uh, in the in the in the. I was going to say in the town, but in the county, I'm fairly sure there would have been no running shops. So it was something that had been, you know, on in the back of my mind the whole time. And then, yeah, and then in my thirties, I found that I really, really needed um, some long, long form ruminative exercise, and uh, running running was perfect for that. When I grew up in my house, um, my brothers were all runners. They were older than me. And so that's sort of what, just what I grew up sort of, oh, we're going to run. You know, having the body frame helped for mm, it. Yeah. Um, and so there's always this expect, expectation in our house that I was going to run. There's a Nike poster on the wall. You still remember it. Huge Nike poster, picture of a meandering path that this runner was on at the very bottom of the hill. You can see the whole road and it's, it's a Nike poster. It says, the roads are always open. And yeah. that for me, you know, I've, I have had a love hate relationship with running. I competitive running hated it. My brothers were always super, superstars and I never wanted to put the time in to do that. But over time, I remember developing a relationship with running to deal with emotions. And I think this is something you talk about in footnotes a great deal. Yeah. And I want to point out today, we'll talk about barefoot running. We'll talk about some of the physiology, fascinating science that you report on this, but also. For people who don't really think they can run, I think this is for for those people too. Yeah, it is. I mean, one of the things that I um, learned from writing footnotes was just um, it's like saying you know you can't drive you can't drive a car. Uh, you know, a, a cars are designed to be to be driven. <laughs> Almost everything about them is optimized for for being driven, and um, although. We spend a lot of time not thinking about our bodies, especially when we're younger, like in our twenties um, and, and thirties. When our, you know, for most of us, our bodies are are pain free, and and we we don't really think a great deal about their their physiology. I was teaching, I teach at the med school at, um, in Kent, and I was talking to some of the students there this week, and. Um, we were talking about the the physiology of the foot. Like, what does this tell us about human beings? And um, yeah, n- none of them said that you know we're that we're obligate you know obligate bipeds. That this tells us a great deal about how we evolved to move. That we evolved to move long, longitudinally. Everything in the, in the human foot and lower leg is optimized for producing that longitudinal power. Um, our bodies are really designed are really designed to to run you know everything from the fact that we have like very flat faces um to uh that we have short little toes that are much more much more powerful um uh uh yeah all, all of it is a, is about being optimized to run and then there's also kind of non biomechanical things about us as as well that again, is optimised for running, um, one of which would be, well, a scientific word for it would be thermoregulation. Um, the ability uh, to dump heat quickly. Yeah, sweat. <laughs> We're talking <laughs> about sweat. Um, like most mammals uh, can like sweat from their palms or, or from their paws rather, but not really much else. And yeah, humans can, can dump incredible amounts of heat and also because we're bipeds um on a hot day the sun only hits maybe as little as 40 percent of our bodies whereas whereas for a quadruped it's about 70 percent 
So it means that a quadruped is taking on a lot more heat and is less efficient at dumping it, whereas we take on less and are efficient at, at getting rid of it. So it makes us, um, well, it makes us lethal weapons is what it makes us. Um, it, it's the reason, um, I wrote in an article once that sweat is, is, is one of the main reasons that we made it to the top of the food chain. And is that a more recent anthropological, um, theory, Dr. Craig and Reed? Is, is that something like, I think people have often, my understanding is that it's been, well, our brain has evolved. We've, be, we've become complex predators, you know, apex predators because of our comp, complex ability to think, form groups. Is this, is this the idea that running and specifically long distances outrunning any other animals? Is that a newer type um, of theory? It's been, it's been, it's one, well, it's one of those things where there isn't a thing, you can't really say that there's, there's just one, one, one thing that is responsible for, um, um, for humans being human because, because everything's connected, right? But if we're talking about sweats and we're talking about brain size, as we look at each other on our, in our little zoom pictures, we can both see a very large, well, in my case, a very large exposed forehead, uh, I mean exposed because of my receding hair. I don't mean because of the size of my brain. It's an evolutionary and, advantage. Yeah, it's an evolutionary advantage. You know, the, the fact that we sweat so much from our forehead, um, uh, it means that over millions of years, um, the people that have been able to do that have been more likely to survive. That, that, that it's been more likely that they've been able to keep their brains cool, uh, during, during a hunt. They've been more likely to, to get to the end of the hunt and to, uh, you know, and to continue existing until the point when they, when they can reproduce. So the fact that we have these exposed foreheads for these large brains, our foreheads are the brain's cooling system. So everything just sort of knits together in the, in the human body to optimize us for running in Africa. Now you talk about this physiological frenzy that results in the body from running. And I think you, you describe it as something that's really unlike any other physical activity and particularly running outdoors. I want to point out to readers and I hope people who are runners or want to be runners or just want to be more healthy, pick up your book and read it because it's not just chock full of science, which it is, but you're, you're a humanities writer. I mean, you write from the literature perspective and yeah, you know, you really do a great job bringing us into the landscape and that's a big piece of it. But tell me about this physiological frenzy that happens. Yeah. The, the, I think I called it the psychobiological frenzy. Um, I, I, by saying that, I was trying to convey, um, that it's not just one thing. Um, uh, so lots of, lots of people that do any kind of exercise or, or aerobic activity will know, um, about, well, it gets called the runner's high, actually. Um, but, uh, they'll know that, that, uh, you know, it's on endorphin release. Exercise releases in endorphins. Um, but, but that doesn't really explain the kind of in, inten- <clears throat> intensity of that feeling of, 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 uh, joy and, and power and, relaxation uh, that comes when you get a really good you know a really good runner's high smacks you in the smacks you in the face so the psychobiological frenzy is really about all of these things happening at once where you get endorphin release gives us feelings of of euphoria 
It usually does this after about 45, 50, 60 minutes of, of exercise. Um, and from an evolutionary perspective, it's doing that because you're likely to be getting tired now. You're, you're probably going to be getting a bit sore. So there's, so endorphins also have an analgesic pro- properties where they, um, they're basically pain killing as well. But then there's other things that happen as well. We have um, a layer, um, a fatty layer around our brain called the blood brain barrier. And what that does is it protects us from when we get a cold or a flu. It, it means those things actually can't get into our brain. That There's this very effective filter. And this filtration system means that endorphins that are made in the body actually can't get in, make their way into the brain either. Um, so there's, a, there's a, there's another system in the brain called the, um, anandamide system that's also activated and, you know, has all of those similar effects again, um, heightening all the effects, uh, that endorphins have for us. So, um, you get kind of, um, multiple things happening um like multiple parts of your body are involved in in in, in creating uh the sort of neurological frenzy that can result from an extreme extreme high some people never get them which is which is very sad um well you have to get to a certain passive pain point maybe a threshold of conditioning perhaps to get to that because it's more than just a 20 minute i mean if we do what the government or science tells us to the bare minimum 20 minutes so yeah, you do have to get to a certain le- level of fitness. You have to be an intermediate runner, but you also have to be a runner to get a runner's high. You also have to be a runner that hasn't got an appetite for running fast mm. because it mm. seems like most people that get regular runner's highs are quite ambulatory runners. They're, mm. they're quite happy to just sort of bob along at their own, at their own pace. Not sprinters. It's, you say it takes guts to go slow. It's got to go slow. Well, I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> it's, we, just, it's just self-blood praise. I, I ran into this club over here in some online group. It's the Slow AF Club. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. the running club, you know. It's just it call good. it what it is, it's but good. you know. But so and so, why is that? Why why is why does it take guts to run slow? Why is it important? That could be applied for me when I ski. I was I just went to the Rockies in Colorado, came back skiing. You know, the older I get, the more I realize slowing down is much more fun. It is. It is much more fun, and I just think if anybody, uh, so one of the big problems, you know, it's, it's, it's what we've just been talking about, is there's a, a really big, uh, deeply structural societal problem with adherence to exercise, and it's very basic. If you make your exercise unpleasant, you're not going to do it. And I think lots of people's relationships with running, for example, um, uh, people that don't run, their memories of it are soiled by their experience of running at school, which was to run as quickly and as fast as you can. Sort of a winner's take all, zero sum. Yeah, yeah. And you just think there aren't many experiences in life where we measure our success on the completion of it in the space you know, with the speed with which we can do it. Like, forgive me, like having sex, you're not going to boast about, yeah, I did it in 10 seconds. You know, so, you know, the the whole point is if it's enjoyable, why not, why not enjoy it and make it, make it last. So, um, so I'm all for uh, running um, uh, slowly. 
It also means that you're getting, you know, more cardiometabolic benefits from, from your exercise by going slow. And you are much more likely to enjoy it because you won't find it so, so unpleasant. Right. I think doing something that makes you feel sick, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. That's why, that's why people have really struggles to stick to any kind of exercise that involves high intensity interval training. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. Right. CrossFit is a big thing in our, in our, you know, basically uh, exercising to the point. I think this was one of their main things until, until you're throwing up, until you're past the point of exhaustion. Like that's the goal. Mm. So I think you point out that most high intensity or um, speed speed runners train at you know eighty percent of the time below their maximum. Yeah, you know that's, that's just right. part of good training. Part of good training. So um, uh, yeah, eighty uh, percent is the, the low hanging fruit of 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 fitness is done by uh, uh, it's about the amount of time that you spend right. doing the training rather than the intensity with which you do at it. Also, there's a very good, um, there's a very strong link between uh, levels of intensity and injury. Mm -hmm. Say more about that, because this is something that took you to the Spalding Running Laboratory. National Running Center. National Running Center in in Cambridge. And um, some of the world's leading experts on on running and the physiology of running. Yeah, Um, well, um, Daniel Lieberman turned out to be just around the corner in Harvard, don't you know? So I also went to see him too he's um he's he's a fantastic individual so yeah i went to see irene davis um who uh she's in born to run actually she's in she's in yes. born to run um uh so she works at the spalding national running center so i i went there to find out what work they were doing she told me all sorts of interesting things about um shoes running shoes in the shoe industry um, yeah what happens when we put a shoe on this foot that is arguably Really, I don't think it's arguable to scientists. It's been quite well established that the foot was designed to support itself over great distances without a shoe. Uh, yeah, yeah. So what what happens when you put a shoe on? I I, I think people are really struggling to understand. <laughs> um, uh, the, the answer to such it's such a simple question, isn't it? Like biomechanically, you just think, well, well, go on a treadmill and we'll film you in slow motion and we'll be able to see exactly what happens in a shoe. Um, we do know that some things happen. So running shoes, um, usually have a heel to toe and differential. So there's, there's a sort of slight platform aspect. And what that, what the, that means is it, it, um, it alters the runner's gait, um, uh, so that, so that nearly all runners end up running onto their heel. So when you take away all of that cushioning, uh, what happens is, um, without thinking if they're on a hard surface, it doesn't work on things like wet sand, but if you're on a hard surface, everybody, um, switches over to either a, a forefoot or what's called a midfoot strike. Midfoot strike is when kind of the whole foot, the front and back, the toes, everything comes down at exactly the same point. A forefoot strike is when it's obviously the forefoot comes down. And, and, and that the is the more lands. natural version of running where the spring yeah. action comes in from the. Yeah, so um, in the olden days, before shoes were invented, people had um, high arches in their feet. And this arch um, is created by four layers of arch muscles. Um, it, it doesn't exist in your skeleton. The arch doesn't exist in your skeleton. It's, it's, the arch is really made by the muscles mm. pulling the uh, metatarsals 
and the phalanges back towards the heel. It's a, it's a muscle pulling it back and, and creating a, creating an arch where, where we kind of vault away from the earth. And then what happens is, um, as when the forefoot strikes, the heel then comes down afterwards. And then as the body, as our center of gravity passes over the foot, our, about two and a half times our body weight gets loaded into that arch and it springs back with such force uh, in, a, in, in a person whose arches are functioning co- correctly. It springs back with such force that it actually returns 15%, um, actually I think it might be 17% of our, of our body weight. So just that simple mechanism saves you having to lift 15% of your body weight with every foot strike. And that adds up um, a lot over that that adds up incredibly miles. quickly. And you know, if you think Forces. what's fifteen yeah, fifteen percent of your body weight, um, and you do uh let's say sixteen hundred steps per mile, I'm just gonna get a calculator yeah, going. Get, get, get some trigonometry. Yeah. Get some, some. <laughs> so sixteen hundred steps multiplied by oh, we're working in pounds, aren't we? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Four, Unfortunately. Um that's over, if you run a mile, that means you've returned, you've saved, uh, 7,000 pounds. Wow. Conversely, yeah. you've absorbed it on your heel. It shoots up your leg, your knees, your back. Yeah. All those yeah. injuries. So uh, there's always shock in a foot strike. There is all shock always moves up the body with a foot strike. Um, but, um, but what it looks like is that, um, um, it's very hard to describe on a podcast, but what you get is if you measure the shock of a foot strike for someone that's a four foot runner, what you get is a very sort of smooth, um, like if you asked a child to draw a hill, the parabolic you know, really. Yeah. Yeah. You get a, a smooth uh, parabola. Um, but if you give somebody a cushioned shoe, um, uh, the, the, the way that the heel comes down means that the shock, um, 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 moves up the body, moves, um, it happens much more quickly. So you get a very sharp spike followed by a parabola. Um, and we're still, we, they are still trying to work out what this actually means for the human body. But, you know, anybody, I think, that questions whether shock is bad for the human body, you know, just look at a car accident. Shock, shock in the human body don't get on all that well. So it looks like uh, full foot running is much more natural. But for me, the biggest um, persuader is the historical argument, which is um, uh, Eric Schinkhaus, who's a, who's a paleoanthropologist, um, published an article on this a few years ago. I forget what, what year it was. But he was looking at the emergence of shoes, and he was um, he was interested in whether... That our skeletons, the bones in our feet, especially fossilized bones and feet, had changed as a result of the invention of shoes about 40,000 years ago. And, um, he found that they had the, 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 the feet and the, and uh, the muscles and the muscle attachments on the bones had actually started to atrophy. So if you think that we've been wearing cushions to my ankle, didn't wear shoes at all, but that was unusual, even in the, in, even in the 1960s. Right. Um, and then cushioned running shoes didn't really begin to appear until probably the late eighties. But bearing in mind, you know, human DNA or, or hominin DNA, 
it goes back about 2.3 million years. Um, we're not sure about, um, you know, whether Homo habilis was a, was an endurance, um, endurance runner. But we are absolutely sure that Tacana boy, who was, um, um, a nearly complete Homo erectus skeleton, um, uh, discovered in Kenya. Um, uh, they are, they are absolutely, Tacana boy has all, has the full endurance suite. So he has the, the right holes in his skull for, um, the vestibular ocular. Oh, I can never say this vestibular. Let's call it the vestibular system. Better do um, than me. Keeps the head from falling over on, on, on running, right? Yeah. So it means you can bob your head from side to side. So if you did it now on the zoom with me, you'd still be able to focus on my face yes. really, really easily. Stable vision. And if I held up, if I held up a piece of paper for you to read, you could move your head from side to side. Yeah, it's remarkable. And you'd, and you'd still be able to read it. If you, if you did it the other way with your head going up and down, yeah, you wouldn't be able to do anything. So it's a system that's really optimized for that side to side shift that, um, and so Connor Boy has that. He has the right holes in his, around his ears, around his skull for that. Um, so we've been runners for about, probably for about 2.3 million years. Now, if you compress the lifetime of, of modern hominin, let's call us modern hominin, uh, DNA, if you compress the lifetime of modern hominin DNA into the nine to five of a working day where you turn up at your office at 9am and that stands for two million years ago. And then 5pm is the, um, is the, is the present. So two million years ago is 9am, 5pm is the present. Um, you just think, well, how, how much of it, how much time is the 1980s to today in the context of that bigger story of human life? And it's about, um, let me think. It's about 0.1 of a second. It's a, it's a blip. I think you, if you said blip really, really quickly, mm. you'd use up about five of those 0.1 seconds. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that fast. Yeah. It's so fast that, you know, you wouldn't even, you'd miss it if you blinked. Right. We're, we're, um, Dr. Davis, Irene Davis points out that shoes are allowing you to run your, outrun your natural ability. Yeah. And that's what leads to these injuries, right? If we, and I noticed, so I noticed this. I took, and we should talk about sort of what it's like and how you transition to barefoot running. I think some people would be interested in this and and also interested in the controversy of this. You know, I don't, this is interesting because first thing that came to my mind is like, well, that's crazy. Like, that's silly. If that was really, that was really the best way to run, we would see, NBA teams, you know, professional sports, professional soccer teams, uh, football teams, they would be giving up shoes, like, cause their, their, their body parts are worth millions of dollars. Like they, but we, but we do see those people. I mean, we see, uh, anybody that's involved in any kind of martial arts, any, yes. any, anybody that does, you know, ballet or, or dance, people that require precision movement. I'm somebody yeah. that had, I have very high arches and over time began to get plantar fasciitis as complaint of many athletes, but especially with high arches, went through a lot of you know, problems with knees as a result of that and everything else. And then eventually got orthotics to support the arches and that, that cures it, you know, essentially cures it. But then reading your book, I thought to myself, well, gee, this makes a lot of sense. I've, I've effectively gone in the other direction. My body's been telling me you need more strength at this point in your body because it's hurting. Even in certain shoes, it's hurting. And so I, 
it just took, we were at the beach one day and I, uh, for a week for an extended period and started running very short distances. Now I would have previously probably run, try, just tried to run a mile at the beach and, and then hurt so bad that would figure, well, never going to do that again. That was stupid. But after reading your book and realizing, okay, there, take some, take, take a step back here, right? Let's just try running five minutes. Uh, barefoot on the beach, I mean, a little more cushion on the beach. Obviously, there's other issues with you know rotation and so and so forth. But um, work up to ten minutes. Work up. So after after a week, I was running comfortably uh, on after the beach. After a week, yeah. After a week, it, it didn't take me long. Now then, I get back and and I say, well, well, I can go to a soft grassy field. Now it was also probably about forty degrees Fahrenheit. And that was a bad combination. Feet got very cold. Ground was cold. Ground was hard. And yeah. that, that hurts. But I could do it for five minutes. Like, whereas before Viber, I would have been cringing. I mean, having the plantar fasciitis symptom can take weeks to recover from. I don't know. It can take months. Months. It can take months and months. Yeah. Yep. So I, <laughs> without a problem. Now, but I've since thought about that. Like yesterday, I went out and run, stayed on the grass, much harder work. Right. And then, but also notice even, even hilly grass, like just enjoyed and, and slowed down and went at the pace I could go. Yeah. And yeah. So that, I so got I, something I, from that. I would say that, um, we, because we've, we've spent so much of our time in shoes that we default to thinking soft surfaces are, are better for us. Mm. Um, but actually you, you, nobody wants a challenging surface that's like got anything sharp on, on it or, or gravel that, yeah. that is yeah. just. Yeah. That's not a good idea, yeah. but very hard, smooth surfaces, um, are actually very good. So if there's smooth concrete, um, th- the reason it's good is because you get really good, clear feedback from how you're running. Mm-hmm. And if what you're doing is, um, um, using the cushioning to slow down the shock of soft grass, you won't be able to do that on concrete. I see. So it's, it's very good for, um, uh, gait training to, to actually run on concrete. Also, if it's cold, um, that, if the, if the, um, if the ground is cold, it disrupts the level of feedback that you're getting because your nerve, you know, your, the nerves in your, the subcutaneous receptors in your feet answers. I mean, they go numb in like a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, that can be a bit risky because you might have done something and you won't know about it until your feet warm up a bit. Mm-hmm. So it's risky. It is. Yeah. What, what books do you recommend for somebody interested in testing out natural running? Please take the time now to subscribe to the soul of life, wherever you're listening, give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. Uh, well, but yeah, gosh, Born to Run is just fantastic, isn't it? Um, it's probably still number one in the running charts on Amazon. I've not, I've not actually checked recently. Um, but, uh, yeah, Born to Run is, is amazing. I really like, um, I've got enormous respect for Daniel Lieberman. Um, he's done two books now. Um, well, he's done more than that, but he's done two trade books, one of which is called The Story of the Human Body, which is fascinating. And he's also, uh, just published a, a, another one more recently called Exercised. It's about the, 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 the evolutionary history of, of, of exercise. Um, and one of the ones that I read recently that I really enjoyed was, um, The Lost Art of Running by Shane, um, Shane Benzie. I think it only came out about six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And he's very interested in the kind of 
in uh, employing the the innate elasticity of the human body. So he's all about um, uh, loading the body so that so that energy can be returned to it. So a little bit like what I was saying about the arch, but but using it uh, throughout the gait cycle, finding ways of using elasticity and yeah. um, to propel you forwards. Um, so yeah, they'd be my recommendation. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. No, learning to run. Uh, uh, slightly forward has completely changed my experience running with a slight forward lean, mm-hmm. letting yeah. my, letting my, um, toes, you know, do the, do the striking and, um, boy, the calves, I mean, it's taken me months to, to acclimate to how, how much pain that, that, how much, you know, how little I can actually run first of all in that, in that proper form. But then eventually how, how much easier my gait is. Once those muscles muscles get con, uh, conditioned to running, yeah, forward. yeah. So there's a lot you I mean, can do, even if you're going to stay in shoes. There's just a lot you can do to correct some heel striking. Yeah, there is. I mean, you could buy either um, uh, shoes like Vibrams, uh, which I haven't got a pair here, but I've got, I got a shout pairs. out to. By the way, that company Vibram was in a little. It was founded in a very tiny. Rural town in rural Massachusetts, where I grew up, North Brookfield, Massachusetts. That's where the is factory right? is. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Anyway, no, I think I think they're they're they're, they're great. Um, there's a British company called um, uh, Vivo Barefoot. They're very good as well. And what they do is they both companies specialize in in shoes that have a very very thin sole. Um, and I think I've learned over the years that what I personally prefer is not. Uh, no cushioning, but just a very, very tiny bit. Mm-hmm. Just a very, very tiny bit. Um, kind of like a shoe you can roll up in your hands. Is yeah. that like like, yeah, like yeah, a, a running right. flat, like a sprinter's flat? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. That would make me cringe um, right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I could see it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Tell me about your your experience i guess running outdoors because that's a big part of your book i think every every chapter or every section of your book is broken up into some of the science and the research and the people you meet researching the foot and the body but also uh going to moss forest the lake region in europe um i'm sorry in the uk and you know that, that rings really true for me my son and i did a big trek across the grand canyon here in arizona Last fall, just or sorry, last spring, about a, uh, a year ago, right, right as COVID was hitting, we decided we had this thing planned. We're going to go. Everything was shutting down. We got out there. We were by ourselves. You know, we had sixty pounds on our back. We were walking, but great distances. You know, over five days. You know, it was just something. It's it's hard to put into words, and you do a wonderful job putting it into oh. words. <laughs> Thank you very much. I am. Um... So footnotes was, it came out in 2016. So it came out five years ago, but I was writing it on and off for maybe two or three years before then. And I, um, I reread it just recently and, um, it's so much time has now gone by that they no longer feel like my words. And mm. it was lovely to, to, to read the section on the Lake District. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so proud. I can't believe that I did it. Um, so yeah, that sounds arrogant, doesn't it? To say you admire your own work. I think but that's I, no. I get it. That's fantastic. Yeah, normally it takes a. You normally hate it for about three years, <laughs> and afterwards, you think, oh, you, it's only then that you can see it. Um, yeah, see it fresh. But yeah, so most of the book is about um, uh, running um, outdoors because although we've focused a lot on um, the biomechanics of running, um, uh, which is what we've been talking about now. 
I'd say at least half of the book is about the psychological aspects of um, uh, both exercise, but but in particular exercising outdoors and sensory experience. Yeah, and why it's so important for the human body and um, just to feel like it's being it's being used. It's really about how um uh like the really deeply rooted connections that humans have with um the outdoors. Um and I went to um uh University of Michigan in Ann Arbor to meet with several environmental psychologists to talk about um, what greenness means to us, like why it's so important for us to be around green things and to be in uh, green spaces. And uh, environmental psychology, it's a, it's a re- I mean, it's such an interesting field. It's quite a young field. It's only been around for about sort of 40 or 50 years. But it's one of those fields where whenever you read the um, the, the papers that get published in the journals, you read the first three sentences of, of the abstract and it will be something like, um, we decided that we wanted to find out if, if people recovered quicker from operations, if they had a view of a green space um, compared with those that didn't. And as soon as you read the setup, you just think, and I know the outcome of this. Yeah, it's like because obvious <laughs> in hindsight. <laughs> so all of the outcomes in these papers, it's, they're all, I mean, I suppose this is what, how people get funded, isn't it? But they're all, it's all, it's, to say it's so predictable sounds like I'm, I'm being denigrated, but I'm not. I've got huge, um, respect and admiration for the work that they, for the work that they do. But it is all the same. It's all saying we really need green things. We need green things in ways that we do not understand, mm-hmm. but the body responds to in scientifically, uh, measurable ways. Like there's, there was, um, some fantastic research that was done into, um, Forest time. Um, forest bathing, I think I've heard it called in Japan. Yeah, it's called Shunyoku in, in Japan. It's forest bathing, exactly. Um, and um, so early on, some research was done that showed that if people had high blood pressure and they went to spend uh, time in, uh, and they did some forest time, they did some forest bathing, that that time could, well, it would lower their blood pressure but their blood pressure would also stay low for up to a month afterwards. And you think, okay, that's good. That is a scientifically measurable impact of somebody just leaving a, leaving a house or a flat and going to be in and around a green space. But it, uh, about 10 years later, someone, someone else did another trial and they said, so I was interested to find out what happened if people had low blood pressure. Because if you think if, if forests lower your blood pressure, then if you're pregnant or something and you're at risk of low mm. blood pressure, mm-hmm. you just think, it's oh my question. God, you've got to, yeah, you've got to stay away from the forests. And uh, what they found was that um, people with high blood pressure, their blood pressure lowered after their forest time, which uh, as time went on, um, somebody eventually came up with the idea and thought, hang on, this could be really risky for... Um, people with low blood, blood pressure. So if you were pregnant, it might mean, you know, do not go down to the woods today because you might be in for a surprise. Um, but again, it's such a, it's, it's a predictable outcome where it turned out that people that have low blood pressure, forest time, raised their blood pressure. So no matter what kind of blood pressure you had, forest time helps to get you into equilibrium. Equalizer. We talked, we talked a lot today about the foot and the cushioning and the sort of orthotic device that we've 
come to depend on as humans. I mean, I think the conveniences of our life, I mean, this is my takeaway as a, as a, as a mental health provider, that the conveniences of our life, the things that we take on that we think are going to make things better, more routine, easier, quicker, actually they're depressing because it takes away direct contact with a, you know, a challenge, something that actually, you know, we're, we're actually quite good at getting joy from challenging things, complex things. That's what we're kind of designed. We're, we're born to run. I think we're born to, um, solve problems too. And, but even, wrestle. you know, even when, even when you skip and dance your way along a track where you're, you're, you're bouncing from rock to rock, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, where you're not running in just kind of a mm-hmm. straight line and, in your in your shoes that make every footstep feel exactly yes. the same. Yes, that's all of that stuff. It's it's you're problem solving with every it's footstep. You're problem glorious. solving. You're adapting. Yeah, yeah, and you can so feel it in your body. You can feel the the joy of that. Yeah, uh, the, the the body feels like it's being woken up. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Tell me about primate change just real briefly before we close. I can hear in footnotes a lot of uh, foreshadowing, perhaps about this this concept um, primate change. Yeah, there's a sentence in footnotes that says um, something like, and it's about that statistic about the uh, about runners that get injured at rates of 79% a year, and you know why why would this happen? And I, then I wrote a sentence that said something like, uh, the problem with modern runners is that they have um, an Anthropocene body, which is a body that's been made by the human environment, uh, when what they really need is a good Paleolithic body. Um, and then after like a year or so after I finished footnotes, I just thought, I think there's something in that sentence. Um, and it turned out there was a book, uh, two BBC series, <laughs> um, several, several radio programs and lots of interviews in it. Um, and the subtitle was how the world we made is remaking us. And that's, that's the whole book is about how, um, human inventions, how the human made environment has changed the human body. And it's, I thought I'd, when I planned the book, I thought I'd find out that, um, maybe it meant we had a bit more back pain, you know, or obvious things like that. And actually what I found was, was incredible. Um, uh, human feet have grown two sizes in the last four decades. Um, starting from there, changes go all the way up the body to um uh, to our faces um the 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 shape of we think of our faces as really unique uniquely ours we think of them as unique to our dna um but they're not our faces have been uh, obviously they have been created by our dna but the environment that they have met has changed them really quite drastically so our our, our jaws are on are, are narrower um, um nobody can see anymore without without sort of spectacles because we spend so much time away from natural light. But another thing that's happened to our jaws is um, uh, our faces have become flatter from uh, the processing, uh, processed food in our diet. And because our body wants to maintain a good center of gravity, it means uh, if you feel the back of your head where the, where the, where the bump is, where the sort of um, parietal and occipital parts of the skull meet, um, in pre-agricultural humans, that bump is much more pronounced. So we'd have a, a face that juts out more at the front and a head that bumps out more at the back. That means our brains are smaller. Because our faces are flatter, the bump at the back is also flatter 
And that means our brains are actually smaller than pre-agricultural humans. So, yeah, I thought I'd find a bit of back pain, but what I found was everything from the size of our feet to the size of our brains to the shape of our faces uh, to our weight, our height, everything is, is governed by our environment. So it was a fascinating book to, to write about. I think it really um, will come to life for a lot of people and find it interesting. Dr. Vibar Kriegen-Reed, thank you for your time. You're very welcome, Keith. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.